I'm Daniela. Welcome to my podcast, because everyone has a story. The place to give ordinary people's stories the chance to be shared and preserved. Our stories become the language of connections. Let's enjoy it, connect and relate, because everyone has a story. Welcome to a new year, episode number 80. And how is this new year going to be for you? Are you a person who creates resolutions? Every year, people around the world make New Year's resolutions to reach their goals and improve their health and better their life. Many people are successful at keeping the resolutions while others fail. So what type of person are you? For me, I like to see it as new beginnings, and I do this around three times a year. New Year's for my birthday, and also in September, somehow because we had kids, September is also like new beginnings. For me, more than resolution is just thinking about new beginnings, new beginnings. What are we going to do different? What are we going to change? What are we going to keep? I don't make it too complicated, and if I care, really, truly, I succeed. How do you set new beginnings? How often and are they successful for you? That's why I think this episode is perfect for new beginnings. My guest, David Richman. David is an entrepreneur, author, public speaker, athlete, and philanthropist. During our conversation, he made me reflect as he shared many noteworthy points. The importance of sharing your story. Like me, David believes sharing stories forms a deeper connection with others and with oneself, apart from growing compassion. Another point is the power of talking to your mind. Who is really in control? The power of leading with curiosity. Oh, I love this because a week ago, my friend Tamara and I, we were discussing this and it's so powerful to lead with curiosity. The mindset of I have to do something versus I get to do something. And the lessons of endurance athletics have given him, for example, changing his perspective. So everything he say resonated with me and I hope this will also be an excellent episode for you. Let's enjoy David's story. Welcome, David, to the show. Thank you, Daniela. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. And thank you for being here. I'm excited that you have a story for us. Yeah. Well, everyone has a story, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. David, why is it that you want to share your story? It's nice that people are interested. I love covering stories. You know, as a writer, that's what I do. It's rare that you come across someone who doesn't have a story that you could take something from, that you can be inspired from. You never know the difficult times people have been through, traumas they've been through, like maybe something hard they're going through right now. You just never know. And I love t telling stories and I love finding stories about other people. I think maybe sometimes the stories that I write about, uh, whether they're about me or other people, maybe can inspire people to think, you know, how to form a deeper connection. That's what most of my writing is about, is either forming deeper connections with people around you or forming a deeper connection with yourself. And were you always a writer? Yes. Well, there's two sides of being a writer. It's like being a singer. Like, do you sing for yourself or do you sing for other people? <laughs> do you cook for yourself or do yes. you cook at a restaurant for other people? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. So yeah, I've always been a writer, but I didn't really start uh, publishing anything until about 15 years ago. It always seems like like there's never enough time to, to write, but uh, it's something I've done almost my whole life, and I find myself doing it more and more and more and wanting to do it more every day. Great. And so, David, when does your story start? <laughs> this story starts. This story pretty much starts just before 40 years old. To make it quick, right before I was 40, I was uh, on one side of the page. I was doing pretty good. I had a good job. I was making money. It was an important job, basically managing a $110 million unit of a big Wall Street firm in revenue. So very big company, a lot of employees, very challenging. I had some good friends and life was good. But on the other side of the page, it was pretty ugly and pretty bad. I lived in a very abusive relationship with a person who was addicted to a few things and also very violent. And I had four-year-old twins and I was uh, nervous that I had to get us and them to safety. And I was overweight, very much so. I was a smoker. 
I was very stressed out, really at a low point uh, personally. Like I, I was really desperate in my personal life, find some peace and happiness and purpose because I didn't, I didn't have any. And so at 39, all things came together. I had an opportunity to get me and my kids out. And then I had a friend say something to me that hit me at the right time. I'll never forget it. I talk about it a lot because we all have times when we're hearing something a hundred times, but until we hear it, we don't hear it. Right. I mean, it's just the craziest thing. And then once you hear it, you're like, oh my God, it's so obvious. And why didn't I hear that before? Well, you weren't ready to mm -hmm. hear it. Yes. And the thing that I wasn't ready to hear was I was used to solving problems and getting out of holes, even maybe sometimes creating the problems and, but getting out of holes. And I, I seem to always find difficult relationships and, uh, you know, difficult times to overcome. And like, that's how I measured my worth was in the problems that I could solve or the difficult situations that I could get out of. And I was complaining to a friend of mine about all the bad things in my life. And he just said, listen, man, I'm so tired of hearing this because you think every problem and every person, see, it's like a wild animal, each one. And you take the wild animal home and, and you and you and you feed it and you make it look nice and you give it a bath and you talk nice to it and then you go to pet it and it bites you. And you wonder why the heck is it biting you? And he goes, Man, problems are problems. Wild animals are wild animals. They don't know any better. Why why do you keep finding problems? Like why do you keep thinking you can find a rabid dog and then it bites you and you're shocked that it bites you? He goes, You need to look at the guy in the mirror. And you need to figure out what your own problems are because that's where the issue is. And I'm like, what? It can't be me. It's them. It, uh, you know, I had it so rough. Uh. He goes, no, 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 dude. It's all you. You're the problem. And I just went, how is that even possible? So it kind of stuck with me and it made me think, Daniela, I got to start like looking at the guy in the mirror. Maybe he's the one with the problem and not everybody else. And so... That's that's kind of when it started. Wow, what a good friend! Are you? Is he still your friend? He still is my friend. Good friend. I don't complain about my life anymore because I know there's no point in that, and I'm also much happier. Uh, he really taught me uh, through that one very timely lecture. It just really hit home because I I learned a lot of lessons. I was very observant. I cared about people. I probably cared what people thought way too much, and that's probably how I measured myself. But it really hit me and, and it sounds simple, but I don't, I don't think it is simple, but it really hit me that I never, ever cared about what the guy in the mirror thought. I see. And I don't mean being self-centered, but just being self-aware. It didn't matter what I thought. It mattered what other people thought because I didn't, I didn't value. And we, we all do this. We, we all have this negative, mean inside voice that's always telling us, oh, you're you know, you're not smart enough. You're not fast enough. You're not pretty enough. You know, you, you, you know, it, it just beats us up over and over and over. And, um, yeah, when I looked in the mirror and I, I literally stood in front of the mirror one night, uh, shortly after, and I started to ask the question, like, like, who are you? What do you care about? Like, what, what are you proud of? What are you embarrassed by? What do you need to fix? What do you need to change? Like, who are you? And why don't you start worrying about that for a minute? And I didn't even have any idea. How was the process then? So I definitely had a couple of those conversations with myself. It was very awkward. It's very embarrassing, you know, very self-conscious, even with nobody in the room, just to start talking to yourself in, in the mirror, like a real person. And it felt very weird, but I made a, I made a list and I go, well, here's what you're good at. Here's what you like. Here's what you should be proud of. And if you're going to be very honest with yourself, these are the things that you need to change. These are the things that you don't like. These are the things you have to work on. Do you know, like, stop saying, stop, stop getting in arguments and saying, oh, you're just sensitive. Like, stop being so sensitive. Stop complaining about the problems that you find. Start finding less problems. You know, don't complain about people that are mean. Don't, don't be around people that are mean, right? I, like, or whatever, all, all the things. So I made a list of all, all the things and, and, and I, and I didn't say, okay, let's check them off one by one, but I think I just made a fair assessment. Do you know, like when you, when you look in the mirror and if you're really honest with yourself 
and you go, you know what, man, I look good. I don't look good. I, this is what I like about me. You know, I'm smart in this case. I keep making this dumb mistake over and over. If you can do that, which is really hard to do, it at least is the first step to changing it. And for me, Danielle, I thought that um, the easiest things to do was to stop smoking. It's a hard thing. But it's the most obvious. Like you can't, if you're uh, somebody who is very insecure, you can't say, okay, one day I'm insecure and then the next day I'm going to be a very secure and confident person. It doesn't work that way. That's a process. But I felt like with smoking, one day I could be a smoker and the next day I could not be a smoker. Hmm. When it came to being overweight, one day I could care about my weight or not care about my weight. The next day I could care about my weight, right? And then I said, well, okay, uh, if you're going to not be a smoker and you're going to not be unhealthy, what do you need to do? Well, today you're not athletic. Tomorrow you're athletic. So start running. That's what I did. Immediately? I mean, you started a diet first? The day I stopped smoking, I started running. Really? Yeah. I couldn't make it even two minutes. And I don't mean run. I mean, very, very slow jog. And I couldn't make it down down the block. I couldn't make it two minutes. And I went, oh my God, like literally, how is that even possible? You're that bad of shape. You've hurt yourself that bad. And how old were you at this time? 39. Okay. Oh, wow. Then the next day I ran three minutes. And then a week later I ran a mile and... Then I ran two miles and quit smoking in the beginning of a February. And in March, I did a 5K. And in April, I did a 10K. And then in July, I did a half Ironman. And then by the end of the year, I did my first full Ironman. So I went from overweight and smoker and stressed out and not healthy and don't care about myself to starting to care about myself. And then all the way to an Ironman within like uh, eight or nine months, starting at 39 from nowhere, right? And so I feel like I never challenged myself. I didn't set any goal high enough, not even close. I wasn't even living on purpose. If I could do an Ironman, what else could I do? And then what else and what else and what else? And that led me to start saying, well, okay, well, maybe you can run three Ironmans in a year. Maybe you could go uh, run 50 miles. How about 100 miles? How about doing a 300-mile bike ride? And it just became, you know, more and more of a challenge to say, it's not really that hard if you commit to doing something positive. It's just as easy, if not easier, to commit to doing something positive than it is to keep doing the wrong thing over and over and over. But how do you find the thrive the first day you start running and you can run more than two minutes? And how come you didn't give up? What was pushing you to continue? So I'm really stubborn. And I think that's partly because I had to be, you know, I really had a a pretty difficult childhood and very difficult teenage years on my own after high school. So starting at 18, very difficult time and had a lot of things to overcome. And it made me very stubborn. Like I'm going to be focused on getting something done and I'm going to solve the problem. I'm going to be very stubborn about it. And I never one time tried to quit smoking. If I was going to try to quit smoking, I was so stubborn, I didn't want to fail at it. I said, okay, I, I don't know what I can do on the upside for athletics, but I do know I don't want to fail at being a smoker. If I start to care about myself on purpose and I fail at that, I got nowhere to go. Yes, but but I feel like you kind of found what you liked because you could have said, okay, I'm going to swim and maybe you did, couldn't swim very well and you just give up because you didn't like it. Yeah, except endurance athletics, when you're doing, and I came to learn this pretty quickly because I went from doing nothing to then a 5K, a 10K and all this other stuff. Now you're talking about being out there on your bike or swimming or bike or running for hours and hours and hours. And the good thing about doing something like that for hours, hours, hours is you get to solve a lot of problems. I, I know you're busy. Everyone's busy. There's nobody listening right now that's bored all day long. Everybody's so busy. They don't have time for anything. Mm-hmm. And they certainly don't have time to think about stuff and contemplate life and really solve problems and get deep, deep thinking about yourself and the way you interact with the world and all of that. We don't get a chance to do that. Even when we watch a movie, we're watching the movie or we're doing yoga. Okay. Maybe we get 45 minutes of, of reflection. But really, even daily meditating only gives us a taste of it. There's something very unique about going for a four-hour run in the desert or a 10-hour bike ride 
and you get to solve a lot of problems. You get to think about a lot of things. And so I just kept thinking over and over and over, like, 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 what can I learn? Like how, like how, how much did I limit myself? Let, let, can I tell you a super quick story? Of course. Of course. That's why we're here. I don't think we talked about this before, but one of the first endurance events that I ever did was an 87-mile rollerblade race. Oh, wow. Which is crazy. It was in Georgia, the state of Georgia, which is very hilly. It was 87 miles, which is what? 130K, something like that, on rollerblades. I'm thinking this is the stupidest thing ever, and I have no business being there. I'm still pretty out of out of shape. I, I don't know anything about endurance athletics, even rollerblading 87 miles as endurance athletics, because you're going to be out there for many, 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 many hours. It's very physically demanding. But I had never done anything like that, and I have no idea. I, I didn't even know what I was getting myself into. I signed up for the race. I learned how to rollerblade. And then I, I fly out to Georgia and I get there and I realize I look around and I go, oh my God, like you're like the one guy that does not belong here. <laughs> Everybody else is an athlete, right? Like, I I don't know if you remember rollerblades, they had the little a break on the back of the, the thing and you, you, you lift up your, your foot and the heel scrapes to slow you down. Yes. It's a break. That's where the break is. I got my break on my rollerblades. Nobody else has brakes. They don't break that way. Real rollerbladers don't break that way. They break by like putting one foot sideways and dragging it behind them. And it's very athletic and I'm not athletic at all. I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing here? So the gun goes off and I get started and everybody's gone. And I'm just like shaking, going down hills and, and struggling to go uphill. And finally, exactly 50 K in, about 30, 31 miles in, I um, hit the wall. And I don't know if anybody uh, is listening. I don't know if you've ever done like a marathon. If anybody's ever done long distance, there's this thing that you that you hit, it's called the wall. And it means, man, I got to stop. Like I, I, you're cramp, you're tired, you can't breathe. It's like, you're done. You're spent of everything. I hit that at mile 31, about 50 K in. I see this big hill ahead of me and I'm like, oh my God, I like, I got to get over this hill. And then I got to go like another 60 miles almost. Like, how is that even possible? I'm 100% done. And I lean over on my knees and I'm sweating because it's hot summertime. And I'm like, this is like completely ridiculous. And then I said, okay, well, first of all, you got to be positive and you got to think there's only two things that could happen. One is you quit and you go home and you could be very happy with yourself because you have no business being out here. You made it 50K, you made it 30 miles and you learned so much along the way. And then you reach this line right here. You know, this is your limit and you could go home and be very happy. You found it. Like you did everything you could do. And it's amazing that you could go this far and do this. I said, or you got to take one more step. And if you go one more step, you're going to learn something new that you had no idea about yourself. It's past every limit I ever thought I could do. And then I hit the limit and I go, okay, if I could take one more step, I'm going to learn something because I'd never been there before. It's brand new territory. So I took, I took one little roll and I stop and I go, okay, if you take another roll, you're going to learn something and learn something and learn something and learn something. And I was drawn to that. That was like, I had no idea that I could go that hard. I had no idea I could keep pressing. I had no idea I could learn. I had no idea it could be that challenging and I could step up to it. And nobody cares. Nobody's watching me. I'm not trying to prove anything to anybody, but what, what could I do? And I'm like, wow, this is cool. So every time I took a step, I'm like, you're, you're in new territory. You're learning something new about yourself. And six hours later, I made it to the finish line. I mean, I was slow and it hurt and it was, it was nearly impossible. I got sick afterward and it was terrible, but I just went, wow, man, like you learned like a thousand things that day. And so every time I do an endurance event, I've done hundreds and hundreds of endurance events since then. Uh, every time I do one, I'm kind of like, Wow, man, like, like, look at what you learned and look, look what you're doing that you never thought you could do. So that's kind of been the draw for me. Wow, pretty inspiring. And so how many kilometers you did in rollerblades at the end? Uh, just under 150K on rollerblades in the summer on hills. It's crazy. It's crazy. It goes from Athens, Georgia to Atlanta, Georgia. It's called the A2A and they've been doing it for years and years and years and years. It's a race. Like it's not a bunch of bunch of silly people. I mean, there's a bunch of athletes that are, I mean, they're pros in Europe. They, they sometimes have a marathons with, with rollerbladers and, and there's a 20,000 people that show. I mean, it's, it's big, right? But I didn't know anything about anything. The, the point is, is that I just thought, what could I do? I remember I said, it took me a long time to even think of myself as being an athlete. 
because I'm comparing to other people, right? I'm, I'm not any, any of these people I see that are athletes. And I said, what would make you an athlete? In your head, what would make you an athlete? And I said to myself, hmm, okay, if you woke up one day, no training, and you just woke up and got out of bed and said, today's the day I'm going to put on my shoes and I'm going to go run 50 miles, which is uh, 80K. If you could just wake up one day and go run 80K without training, just be in the kind of shape that you could just get up, put your shoes on and go run 80K, uh, that would make you an athlete. Because you imagine a guy who's, you know, 60 pounds overweight, smoked for 20 years, completely stressed out, the least athletic type person ever. And now one day I could just wake up and run 80K just because I wanted to that day. And so I did one day and I said, okay, that's pretty cool. Like it's nothing major. It's like people raise kids and they start businesses and they, they do all this really amazing stuff, right? It's just stupid to go run 80K, but it's the it's one of the ways that I identified with myself because if you would ask me when I looked in the mirror, like who are you and who do you want to be? I was an overweight smoker, dude. I had no idea I could go run ADK on the fly, right? Mm-hmm. I had no idea I could go do an Ironman or do two Ironmans. Or I've done almost twenty Ironmans. Who who could think? Are you kidding me? There's no way. I had no idea. So it's it's even though it's it's nothing big. It's for, for me. It's very personal that. It's like, wow, man, I set my sights on myself way too low. I keep pushing further and further because if you push yourself for something you want to do, you usually can deliver. Uh-huh. I like that, that you set yourself too low. It's true. We, we have to push yourself a little more. You're right. It's all in our head. Yeah. What other changes came out of that? Okay, you're not overweight anymore. You're no smoker. You're an athlete now. Mm-hmm. What other changes happened? Because you were really working hard on you. Yeah, I had to. So I had to come to peace with some problems that I had. You know, I, I don't think I was great at choosing the people in my life that would be additive. I think I liked having people in my life that caused chaos and a lot of trauma because that's what I was used to from my childhood. And I think I needed to change the pattern. It's easy for us to do that. It's easy for us to get in patterns. You know, like sometimes if if you're married and let's say there's a problem that you have, it's not a big problem. It's a minor issue between you and your spouse. And it's like, why are we like for the 30th time talking about this minor issue? Can't we just like break the pattern and not talk about it anymore? Like, how do you break a pattern where you're just dealing with the same problem over and over and over? Mm-hmm. I had to really break some patterns and really rechange the way that I think about things. I, I think it it sounds trite, but I, I think I learned a, a lot of valuable lessons. W- one of them was, and, and that's the most important, besides that kind of like every, every time you push yourself to in a new way, you learn something, which how how is that not the greatest thing ever? But one of the biggest lessons, uh, the mindset of I have to do something and I get to do something. Big difference. I'll tell you how I learned that that lesson. It was was really pretty hilarious because the very first 50-mile race, 80K, in Las Vegas, in the heat of summer, it was 118 degrees that freaking hot, right? That's too hot. Yeah. You know, Sahara Desert hot. I'm really not prepared. I don't know exactly what I'm doing. I never done anything like that before, and I didn't have any coaches or anything. I'm just trying to figure it out on my own. But I got to the start line late, five minutes late, and I'm racing the park, and my heart rate's going nuts, and I'm like just annoyed at myself because I'm late. And I race up to the start line. And everybody's already taken off, and so I start running up. And the first like quarter of a mile is almost straight uphill, and I start going like, really. Like, like what? Why do they got to start that race so early? I wouldn't be late if it was early. And then why did they have to start uphill? It's 50 miles. Like, why don't they start where it's flat, where you're not ruining yourself? And then I turn the corner and there's somebody holding up a sign saying it's only 90. And they crossed out the six and put an eight. It's only 98 degrees out. And I'm like, it's 630 in the morning. It's almost 100 degrees. I, who does a race? And I got all this negative talk in my head about things. And I finally said, oh, my God, like, shut the hell up. I go, no, first of all, nobody paid you to be here. Nobody's forcing you to do this. Nobody even expects you to do it. Nobody even cares if you do it. Like, seriously, you signed up for this. You are the one that did it. Stop your whining. Stop complaining. Change your perspective. And I started thinking, holy cow, man, wow, did I have the wrong perspective? And I started thinking about perspectives like, okay, at work is a problem. 
an opportunity or is a problem a problem? Is a good thing always a good thing? Or maybe do you need to be cynical sometimes? Is something that's negative uh, always negative or can be used to learn something? And I started going, oh, what does changing your perspective mean? And then I thought about writing of a book. Do you write it from the first person or the third person perspective? When you see movies, are you inside the character's head or outside the character's head? And I started thinking about perspective. And by the time I finished my ideas on perspective and that I could rewire my brain to think more positively, like I'm the problem, like you don't have to be here, you get to. By the time I finished all of that, Danielle, I was at the turnaround. I was like four hours of just thinking about the idea of you get to be here. You're choosing this. This is what you want to do. Like you can't be negative even one one second because nobody's forcing you to do this. Nobody's telling you to do it. You're choosing it. So you might as well enjoy it. You might as well learn from it. If it hurts, enjoy it. If it's difficult, learn. If you have to quit, be be happy that you made it this far. If Whatever. It's like a, a way to change my perspective. And so Endurance athletics for me gave me the ability to learn lessons like that. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of learning for sure. I mean, you didn't even notice you were running in that heat. Had no idea. You were busy in your mind as we always are busy in our minds. Yeah. And I remember even saying this to my my kids. My kids were like maybe five or six or seven, whatever whatever age they were at, at this time. And I remember trying to explain to them that they had heard on one side, complaining about having to cook them dinner and complaining about having to do their homework or whatever. And I'm thinking, oh no, I got to explain to you something, guys. I get to cook you dinner. Like I like it. And when we're done with dinner, we're going to sit down and finish your homework. And I would love to be able to help you. Like that's something I get to do. I don't have to do it. If you have to do it, it's just don't do it. You always have a choice and we don't have a choice. Everything in life, right? Maybe we have to go to work. Maybe we have to clean the house. I mean, there's things we have to do. Yes. But I just love the idea of getting to it. Like I get to do it. There's some people that can't clean their house because they can't they can't walk upstairs, right? There's some people that cl- can't clean their house because they're under so much depression that they can't get out of bed, mm-hmm. right? There's people that don't have the opportunity to have a job. There's a million reasons that you got to say to yourself, almost everything is you get to do it. Yes. Which is a big difference. And then, David, how did you come up with the idea of your first book? Is this while you were running or how did that happen? It was when I was running. So I was doing this 100-mile run up in northern Nevada in the mountains. It's called the Tahoe Rim Trail up in Lake Tahoe, if anybody knows that area. It's very ridiculous race. I had to quit. Mile 62, which is 100K in, couldn't go any further. I've got a blister the size of a small jelly bean on my toe. And when I stopped at the medical tent, asked the doctor what to do about it, he handed me scissors and he said, hey, you cut that thing off because I'm not getting anywhere near it. I mean, it was nasty. It was horrible. I was the, the most pain ever was from a tiny little blister that terrible, but I had to quit. And I said, okay, well, you have to quit, but uh, like, be positive about it. what can you learn from it? And being the stubborn guy, I told you I was, that I would never give up. I would never give up and never quit. Well, then I thought to myself, well, it's okay if you quit. Like sometimes, sometimes you got to know when to quit, right? That's okay. Like you learn something. It's a positive you could take. You didn't fail. You gain knowledge. You knew when to quit. And I thought, hmm, there was times in my business life that it's like that and times in my personal life. And so I came up with this idea of, you know, there is a lot of similarities between running a $100 million business and running 100 miles. There's a lot of similarities between going through very, very difficult wholesale changes in your personality and making changes at work. There's a lot of similarities. And I said, hmm. I came up with this idea of winning in the middle of the pack. And that was the name of my first book. And it was this thought process. I'm never going to be like Elon Musk or Oprah Winfrey. I'm never going to be like Barack Obama right there. I'm never going to be the number one. I'm never going to win a marathon. And I'm also never going to be like the worst guy in the world. I'm never going to be living on my mom's couch when I'm 40 years old, drinking beers and playing video games. So I'm not going to be that very last guy. And I'm not going to be the very first. I'm going to be somewhere in the middle of the pack. Is in the middle of the pack, like nobody's watching you. Nobody really cares. And and that's beautiful because you're doing things just for you. So when you go to work, like maybe you're not going to be the boss's favorite. You're not the friend that every person has to look up to 100% of the time. Like 
Maybe you're not that massive influence. Maybe you're just somewhere in the middle where you're just living your life or you can do a lot of amazing things there. I mean, I've raised two great kids. I have a beautiful, healthy marriage. I have a ton of friends. I love what I do. I endurance athletics. Like I, I do great at work and I've written books and they won awards. I, like, I got nothing that I don't go, wow, man, I'm very lucky. Like I've done a lot of great stuff in my world, but I'm still not like number one at anything in the world, I, but that's okay because I'm doing it for me. I don't care what anybody thinks. Nobody's watching. Nobody's measuring me. They're just living their lives and trying to do the best they can. So I came up with this idea of winning in the middle of the pack, which says, hey, if nobody cares and nobody's watching and they're just living their own lives, why don't you just live your own? And why don't you win for yourself? Don't worry about the medals. Don't worry about being number one. Just be the best you can be. And I thought, wow, man, that's kind of cool. So how do you win in the middle of the pack? And it's just like like everything you do, you choose to do because you get to do it. And everything that you do, do the best you can do at it. Because the only person that really cares is the, is the person in the mirror. They're the only ones who have to live with you all day long, right? So they're the only ones that care. Do it for that person. If it goes well, you learn. If it doesn't go well, you learn, you keep getting better and it matters it, only to one person. Obviously, is there's other people involved, but but really, in the end of the day, really, how cool is it if, if you could just go, I'm doing my best. Like, I'm doing the best for, for me. I love that. I came up with that idea of middle of the pack and winning, winning there. And then I wrote this book about all the lessons I learned in endurance athletics and in business, you know, talked a little bit about each one. Wow. Takes me a while to get inspired, but you actually inspire me. It is amazing what you're saying. It's so incredible. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. That's what I love about podcasts, especially ones where you're people are telling their stories, you know, like your, your friends, a couple that opened the Mexican restaurant in Vancouver, like you have no idea, mm -hmm. like how much passion people have and how much difficulty they have and the journeys that they go through. And I love listening to podcasts because you get to hear people's stories and everybody has something you could take from, but we know we just don't oftentimes have the time to listen and to just be calm and to go, okay, you know, what can I take from yes. this? And I love that. I love that. Me too. I love podcasting, listening to stories and learning from them. Did you quit your job in this process? Don't you wish? Just the reality is there's not a lot of money in books. So I, I did it in the background, but I do a lot of things together. Part of it is you have a long-term goal, but I think more part of it is just the process. If you love doing what you're doing. You were working in the stock market. You had two twins, kids, and then you were running, taking care of yourself. And then you have time to write a book. That's amazing. And more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because look, I feel like there's there's two kinds of people, as I feel like. There's people that are vertical. They do a couple of things, but they do it really big. They do it really well. They're all about their family or they're all about their work or they're all about the business that they started or they're all about the, their musicians and they live music 24-7. They're very vertical. Then there's other people that are horizontal and they do a lot of different things, but they do them at different degrees. And so I'm definitely horizontal because I'm much better when I'm doing 10 things oh. to keep me busy than if I'm doing one thing to keep me busy. Because the way my, my brain is working, it's always marinating things in the background. I think of it like cooking. Like I'm getting ready to cook American holiday Thanksgiving coming up on Thursday and have nearly 20 different dishes that I'm making. What? So you, on top of that, you're a cook as well, like a chef. Yes. So it takes the amount of coordination, like when you got to put things in, when you got to prep, what you got to buy. It's very crazy, like math problem you got to solve. <laughs> and I like it because it keeps things going in the background, like constantly marinating things in, in the background. And that's with writing and with other creating things that I'm doing. I, I do like mosaics, uh, tile work. I like to have things marinating in the background. It helps me solve problems. And I feel like a lot of times we get stuck in a rut or we get stuck on the same issue and we don't know how to solve the problem. We don't know how to change things because we're just so present in it that we just were too close to it. And sometimes you, you have to walk away and you got to let it figure itself out. You got to let it marinate. For me, doing a lot of different things allows me to do everything usually a little bit better. It's, it's very different. And, and I wish sometimes I could be the other way. 
I wish I could find the three things in my life that I could focus all my attention on, but I, I can't because I'm, I'm going to give up the other 20 things that I love doing and I don't want to do that. That's awesome. When you grow older, you're going to be a centenarian for sure with lots of hobbies. Think about this, right? When you're, uh, you, you know, somebody who's a musician or an artist, you, you have everybody knows somebody who's a musician or an artist, right? And how cool is it that they think they want to be the best musician ever? Or the best, you know, that's like that. Their passion is dancing. Their passion is music. Their passion is, is whatever. And that one thing they want to be the best at. Okay. Well, in order to be the best at that one thing, you got to give up a lot of stuff, right? I mean, you do, you got to focus on, you can't be the best at anything. If you don't give it everything you have, everything, you got to pour everything into that one thing. I just don't like those odds, man. I'd rather do 20 things and be really good at them. Than, than one or two things and be the best at them. Oh, I, I like your perspective. Thank you for sharing that. Anything that you love doing, you're just always going to do it better. And I just actually love doing like 20 different things. So I can't just do one thing. I learned early, way early in my life, I learned this valuable lesson. It's never, ever left me. And that is the choice to do something is not a choice to do that thing. It's a choice to not do the thousand other things you could be doing at that moment. So if, to the extent that you can, if you are able to choose that thing that you're going to do right then, it better be the thing you want to do because otherwise go choose one of the other thousand things. So it teaches you to be a little bit more present and a little bit more committed to your decision, especially if you marry that with you get to make most of your decisions. If you get to make the decision, it better be the thing that you want to do because otherwise go do one of those other thousand things because you don't get that minute back. You don't get that time back. You don't get that afternoon back, that day back. And it also, you know, sometimes you go, uh, I'm just bored and I'm tired and I don't want to do anything but lay on the couch and watch a movie. And then halfway through the movie, what do you do? You start beating yourself up. Oh, I'm supposed to clean the house and I'm supposed to return a phone call and I got to go get the car washed and, uh, you know, I got to do this and I got to do that. I, I disagree. If you're choosing to watch the movie, like choose it. You're not choosing to do the thousand other things. So just enjoy it. Just let it go. Just enjoy it. Yes. Good. Good. Excellent. Right? Yes. I like that. David, so you wrote the book and you keep working and what happened then? So I did some talking on the book and I wanted to come up with an idea for my next book and it kind of happened automatically. When I was going through the big changes about uh, standing in front of the mirror and trying to figure out what journey I had to go find out who I was. At that time, I, I got a call from my sister who told me that she had terminal brain cancer. And my sister and I were very close uh, in age and in life. We were pretty close. And coming out of the same difficult situation as kids, um, she was very grounded in who she was, very centered, great marriage, great circle of friends, very comfortable the way she interacted with the world, you know, very grounded and authentic and real and I feel like she had a lot of things figured out and I was just starting to figure things out. It was uh, sad because I had this long journey ahead of me and now she's, she has a very short one. And I was kind of touched by that. And I really tried to pay attention to uh, her situation. And I noticed that the doctors and nurses and patients and family and friends. And, and as I started doing fundraisers, I noticed that all the people involved in things as heavy as like, cancer, they're really good about the tasks of the trauma. And the tasks, I mean, how do I navigate insurance? How do I find a better doctor? How do I get my kids watched when I got to go go to get chemo? How do I eat better? Right? They're really good at those things. But when it comes to the emotional stuff, like how do you feel about it? We're very quiet. It can be very isolating, very um, people get abandoned. It's a very lonely place. Uh, for most people at some level, maybe not entirely, but at some level it is. And I was kind of touched by that. I'm like, why is it? Why is it it's so hard to start the difficult conversations around cancer? You know, the idea is I, I could bring somebody a casserole and ring the doorbell, but when they open the door, do I, do I sit down with a box of Kleenex and talk to them about how they're feeling? It's One's easy, one's not, not easy. I mean, how many times have you... And I'm sure anybody listening, you absolutely remember a hundred times this happened to you where somebody told you something that was just devastating. And you're just like, I don't even know what to say. I'd rather not say anything. How many times did you maybe not call a friend or if it was happening to you, how many times did you not let people know what was going on? Cause you 
didn't know how to tell them and you didn't want to put them in an awkward position because we don't know what to say about these things. Everyone experiences traumas. I don't care who you are. You, you're carrying around trauma from, from your childhood, from your young adulthood. Even yesterday, something happened and you're still living your life. But I mean, we all have these traumas, but we don't talk about them. And I wanted to find out why. So um, uh, I, I interviewed, I found a bunch of doctors and cancer patients and family survivors, young, old, cancer one time, cancer five times. And I wanted to find out the traumas in their lives. How did that affect their ability or their inability to later in life when they encountered something traumatic like cancer from whatever perspective, how did those, those traumas in their life limit their ability or sometimes enhance their ability to connect with the people in their lives in an authentic way over the emotional side of what they were going through? Sounds very deep. It is, but who doesn't know? Well, we don't know. I have two people in my family who has cancer at the moment, and I yeah. and it's true. I don't know what to say. Right? How do you go there? Right? How how do you ask people? I haven't talked to one person ever that hasn't gone through something themselves or witnessed somebody close to them that's going through something like cancer. And cancer is different. Like it's not like an accident. It it it's not like a, a a sudden tragic event that takes someone. That's a different kind of trauma. Not better, not worse. It's very very different with. With cancer, it's it gives you a window of time, sometimes a short period of time, sometimes eternity, but it gives you a, a period of time to deal with it. But yet we still end up going, I don't know what to say. I don't want to sound stupid. I don't want to give sympathy because they don't want that. If I start talking about things that are that are in my life, it's going to bring the attention on me. And I know they're going through something so much harder. Oh, I don't want to talk about death because then I'm going to bring them down. I mean, there's there's a million things we don't do. So how can we learn how to talk to people? So what I wanted to do, like what you do, I wanted to bring stories to light. So when I spoke to these people and I spoke to many, many, many people, and I spoke to them for like a couple of years, I, I interviewed them. Like you and I are talking and I would have like 30 or 40 or 50 of these conversations with people to go super deep into their story, their childhood, the problems they had, the good things that happened to them, what they learned, development of their emotional well-being, important times in their life where things didn't work out, important times when they did, so that we could identify with them as people. And then we got into the lonely, isolating parts of cancer or watching somebody go through cancer or treating people with cancer, whatever, and then um, what they learned from that. And, and so there are some common themes. The, the book is not preachy. It's, it's not prescriptive. It doesn't say, uh, here, here, do go do these five things. But what it does is, is I think I told the stories in, in such a way, Daniela, that people can read it and they can go, oh yeah, I can identify. I can feel for that person. And now you get sucked into feeling for them and you understand their joy and you understand their pain and you go, hmm, what can I learn from that? And then you could take it to to your own situation and maybe apply it so that you could form a deeper relationship with the people in your life that are going through things. So did you took it as an interview or you heard the story and then you wrote it in your own words? I interviewed the people uh, and sometimes like, let's say the, the story was about somebody who passed, but I was talking about that person. I spoke to their husband. I spoke to that person's mom. I spoke to the person's sisters. And so I could really understand everybody's perspective of how the story went. When I was talking to somebody that was a survivor, I interviewed them for hours and hours and hours, a, a doctors for hours and hours and hours, many, many, many dozens of hours that I interviewed them, took great notes. And then I wrote the story as them. So it's not me in the story. I originally, I wrote it as me interviewing them and writing the story out that way, like an interview kind of thing. But then my editor said, no, you don't belong in their lives. You don't belong in their story because you're not a part of it. Write the story from their perspective, which is really hard to do because if I sat down and talked to you about the most traumatic things in your childhood and young adulthood and how that affected your marriage and how you raise your kids and your friendships and, and we get that personal and then I got to write it as you, that's really difficult. It was really scary sending the stories to each one of the of the participants to say, hey, did I get this right? Oh, wow. 
because I'm writing it as you. Imagine me writing as Daniela about the difficult things you've been through. I'm not in your head. I'm not in your heart. I don't know how you feel and, and think about stuff. But but because we got to know each other so well and because they were very committed to not holding anything back, every single person, I said to them, we got to do two things. And they said, what? I said, one, we got to go places that you never talked to anybody about before because I can't bring the true essence of your story. I can't talk about the real stuff Unless you tell me the truth, like, how can I feel for you? How can I, how can I get you if I don't really understand you? So I got to really go places. It's very safe. There's no judgment for any other purpose other than to be authentic and to get to the real you. So if we can get there together, that's one thing we have to be able to do. That's why you need more than an hour. You need a lot of time to with that person. Like 50 hours, 100 hours sometimes, right? And then also, if you tell the story, it's kind of like a onion, right? You tell the story about the onion, where you peel it, you get a deeper story, another story, another story. You can tell the same story 10 times, and we're going to just put a little bit different light on one aspect of the story. So I really did get very deep. But one was, we have to go to the essence. We have to go to the truth. Embarrassing, not embarrassing, difficult. People talked about really, really horrible things that happened to them. And they also talked about horrible things they did or things that they were very proud of, things they were ashamed of, because I wanted them to be real so that you and I could read their story and go, yeah, I get that person. The other thing is they needed to be committed to the idea of all we're trying to do is to give people a couple tools. So you have a couple of people that are going through cancer right now. Nobody can tell you what to say to them. Nobody understands the dynamic. They don't know what's in your head. They don't know what's in their head. But maybe possibly the story, one of the stories, maybe all the stories will touch you in a little bit of a way that could maybe give you some openings, a tool here, a tool there for how you might talk to people a little bit differently. And if I told you, you know, you tell your kids this all the time. Hey, do something this way and this is why. And they look at you like, that makes no sense to me. You can't tell people how to do things. But maybe what you could do is you could tell them a story. Mm -hmm. And you could go, look, at this is how this person did it. And this is how this person did it. And maybe you want to think about this. And maybe you want to think about that. And then they figure it out on their own. Oh, you mean so if I do this, then this? And you go, yeah. Right? And so that's what I wanted to do with the stories is people said, I want you to learn from me. I'm not telling you what to do, but, but maybe you could learn. Not, not everybody made the book, right? Because we weren't able to get there with everyone. But, but the people that did make the book, the stories are very relatable, very touching, they're very inspirational, and they handle very big themes, themes like we all have to deal with in our lives. What do you do when you lose somebody? What if that somebody is the love of your life? Can you find another love of your life? What if you spent 10 years not asking somebody to talk to you about what they've been through? How do you get the courage to say, I really care about about you and I need you to tell me what you've been through? Those are the big themes we dealt with in the book. Yeah, really nice. And who are you expecting to read the book? Somebody who has cancer or somebody who lost someone through cancer or anyone? I want to say anyone, but I think it's anyone who cares about this idea of Ah, I really don't know what to say about whatever, especially the emotional side. Like, I I don't want to get too close. Like, I I don't want to say something I shouldn't, whatever. We all have that idea of, I don't know what to say. So the only way I think we could learn is to see how did other people do it? How do you find love after losing the love of your life? How do you understand when somebody says, I'm afraid of getting cancer and it just chills them to the bone? with that, how afraid they are of it. And you want to say, no, that's stupid or silly. It's whatever, right? Because, you know, I mean, why, why is it that debilitating to you? And then when you understand the story, why you go, oh my gosh, like I get it. Like somebody says to you, oh, well, you know, I know it's tough, but you just figure out a way to get through it. And you go, man, how come I can't think that way? Right. Because I, when I have a difficult thing, I'm still carrying around the baggage. Like there's this one woman. Let me tell you a super quick story. But when I first started talking to her, how do you get up every day? And we're on the phone because I didn't do anything face to face. I wanted to give people safety of, of not not wondering if my eyes are judging them. How, how do you do it every day? And she goes, well, David, I get up every morning. I put my feet on the ground. I make my bed and I go about my day. She goes, eh, sometimes I lay back in bed, but most of the time I just go about my day. And I go, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. 
Like, what are you talking about? Like, what, how is that advice? I just get up out of bed and I put my feet on the ground and I go about my day. Sometimes I make my bed and go right back into it. Sometimes I go, I go, I can't use that. So we start talking, we start talking and, and I realized this woman had cancer five different times over 35 year period in her adult life. Imagine that five different cancers. Three of them were supposed to be terminal. They cut out everything they could cut out. They gave her every amount of chemo, every amount of, of radiation. And along the journey, she's ta- even when she's going through chemo one time, she's caring for her father who's dying of prostate cancer. And I'm thinking the amount of negativity this woman been through, but that's not her story. Her story is right before cancer number one, she meets the love of her life. And he's with her through all those ups and downs. And they've been together forever. And I'm thinking, man, that's a story. And that's not her story. Before she met the love of her life, she spent four years being completely, brutally abused physically, mentally, and emotionally in a horrible relationship. And when I say horrible, like in the movies, kind of horrible. Like you couldn't believe how bad it was for her on every level. Absolutely shocking that anybody could ever endure anything like that. And she escaped out of there, changed her identity, started to become safe and build herself a new life, met the love of her life, then gets cancer, then gets it again and again and again. Just She just wants every day to keep going because she knows when she was in that abusive relationship, she could have died. It was either going to be her or she's going to be dead. I asked her near the end of our talk, I go, Jesus Christ, Patricia, you've been through so much. I said, how in the world do you do it? And she goes, well, David, she goes, every day I get up out of bed and I put my feet on the ground and I go about my day. She goes, I make my bed. Sometimes I got to fall right back in it because I'm so sick. I can't, I can't go about my day. But every day I get up, I put my feet on the ground. I make my bed and I go about my day. Oh, I get that. Like I, Wow. That's amazing to think what you've been through, that your thought is every day you get to put your feet on the ground and go about your day. Wow. How in the world did you develop that kind of strength? And so I couldn't be told that, but knowing her story and reading about the things she has gone through and really understanding how you can think so positively that every day is just like, hey, everybody has a tough life. I'm just going to go about my day, put my feet on the ground and give it a shot. Like, wow, I could take so much from that. And each one of the stories has many elements like that where you sit back and you go, okay, maybe I understand a little bit more when you say, ah, man, I, I, uh, there's no way you could understand what I went through or you don't know how tough it was. I know, <laughs> I know, I know people have been through a lot. Well, it was a beautiful project to do this book. I mean, meeting all these people and getting to know their stories. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the same as for me, the podcast it has made me way more compassionate and learning more about other situations that I wouldn't have come across, right? So you you did went through cancer with your sister. Mm-hmm. You learn more by listening to all these stories. So yes, it was beautiful. Congratulations on that. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. And, and the stories, not every story. And not all of, of every story, but sometimes there's a story or a little bit that you can take from every person that you talk to once you really understand what they're going through. I remember looking either on her podcast and seeing your name or your name and seeing her podcast, but there's a woman that you spoke to who is in Australia and she lost her husband oh. suddenly. With, yes. She had two young kids and her love of her life and he suddenly died. Yes, Marie. I remember talking to Marie and thinking to myself, like, I know the old David would have said, yeah, how are you turning the death into something so positive? And how are you able to keep so positive? And there's got to be more to the story. Like, come on, man. Like, that's the old David would have been like, yeah, I don't really get it. But the new me, the me over the last 20 plus years says, man, you know what? You have no idea what she's probably been through. Like you never will. And, but yet look at her and she's doing everything she can in the face of unbelievable, unbelievable amounts of trauma that you'll never even understand what, how anybody could do that. And she's getting up every day and she's trying to make a difference in the world and being the best parent she can be for her kids and being optimistic. And how do you find happiness out of that kind of loss? And how cool is that? Just a little bit of a, of a second of inspiration from her. It just sticks with you forever. So that's what I love about these stories. David, I don't really get the difference between the old David and the new David on the thoughts because it's not like you're more critical. Perhaps you're more skeptical, like you're saying there must be something behind it. 
How can somebody be so positive? Yeah, I don't think I had nearly as much compassion behind understanding what people have gone through or what they're going through. And I think also, I don't think we have enough compassion for ourselves to realize what we've been through and to be able to reconcile that in a purposeful way and and learn how to be okay with it. And one of the hardest things that people have coming through tragedy, especially when they lose someone, one of the hardest things they have is the way that they judge themselves or they feel other people are judging them for being able to move past it. Your trauma that you're living with from being a kid, it's okay to let it go. It's okay. It's okay to be okay with it. It's okay to just say that that was that and move on. I think a lot of times we carry it with them. P- part of the book project, once I met all the people and I spoke to them after a couple of years and I said, oh, I'm going to connect all the stories. And the way that I could connect them is get on my bicycle and bike to all the people in the book. Wow. And I zigzagged my way across the country. I only took six weeks, but I went almost 5,000 miles, which is like 8,000 K in six weeks on my bike by myself, city to city. And I went to hospitals and cancer centers and I visited the patients and I talked to people and everything along the way. For six weeks, eight, 10, 12, 14 hours a day, I'm on my bike just thinking, thinking about the stories, thinking about my life. And and I've been carrying around a couple of pieces of trauma with me for a long time. And it really defines who I am. But I'm thinking like, isn't it okay to move past something? Isn't it okay to just like change who you are and just let these things go? And I, and I remember I started in California and about when I'm in Florida, which is, a, I went from California to Florida and then up to New York. What? Oh my God. <laughs> so I'm, I mean, I went across the country and then up the country. I remember thinking to myself, uh, this analogy and came to my mind and I said, okay, okay. So listen, David. The, the old David, I'm a 10,000 piece puzzle. And I spent all these years putting the pieces together. And as I'm getting close to wrapping my brains around the puzzle, I realized that there's like 10 pieces that are missing. So the old David just goes, dang it, with the 10 pieces. And I'm, I'm so mad about the 10 pieces. And how can I finish the puzzle? Because the only thing you're going to do is look at the 10 pieces that are missing. And I got to go back to the manufacturer and I got to say, give me those 10 pieces. But they can't because it's out of, out of print. They never made that puzzle again. And so the old David would be so pissed off and I'd only focus on the 10 pieces, the 10 pieces. And then the new David goes, you know, you're a 10,000 piece puzzle and you're putting it together and it's kind of beautiful. And you're getting to the point where you realize, like, I got my arms around the puzzle and you realize that there's 10 pieces that are missing. You know what? It's okay. It's okay that 10 pieces are missing, right? You can't go back to the manufacturer. They're never going to be able to send the 10 pieces. And guess what? You put 9,990 together and it's a beautiful, almost 10,000 piece puzzle. Don't even think about the 10 missing pieces. Look at the 9,990 that are there. So those are the traumas that you're trying not to to let it go. Yeah. We, we live in a way that limits us. How many times do, do you know, and I know this for, for sure, people have a hard time accepting happiness, especially if they uh, lost something. Yes. In your brain, you feel like you have to be angry. You have to be sad because you shouldn't be happy. It's your brain. It's, it's all there, right? Right. Why can't we give ourselves permission to be happy? It's hard. It's hard to do, man. It's really hard to do. Man, people are going through a lot and they have gone through a lot. And most of the time, not everyone and not all the time, but most people and most of the time, they're doing the best they can. Yes. So why don't we have some more compassion for ourselves? The new David learned a lot of compassion. You know, a lot of compassion, both for other people and and also for myself. Wonderful. I think this is why we come to this world, to learn about ourselves and to be more compassionate with others. David, so you went to across the country with your bike, but did you actually visit people or you just did the route? No, I did every day. I, I did the route and I visited people. I didn't visit someone every day, but I met uh, most of the people I had talked to for a couple of years for the book, I met most of them along the way for the first time in person. I stopped at a couple of hospitals and cancer centers. Every day I was at a different hotel and you know stopped for flat tires and stopped to grab a bite to eat or whatever. Because I'm on my bike like 14, 15 hours every day. I, I met a lot of people. And so they go, oh, what are you doing? And 
I'd say, oh, I'm riding my bike across the country. Why are you doing that? Oh, I'm just trying to connect these stories. Oh, what stories? And I say, oh, well, writing a book about how to like empower people to have more authentic, difficult conversations around the emotional sides of, of cancer and other trauma. And then they go, oh, my God, well, you know, my grandmother just passed away from cancer like a week ago, and I don't know what to say to my grandfather. They were married for 53 years. How do I even talk to him? Or somebody would say, oh, my God, that's ridiculous. Oh, just a couple of months ago, somebody at work, like we used to be kind of close, but then I found out something happened to their kid, and I don't even know what to say. Like, I, I don't want to run into them at work anymore. And Every single person had a story like that. And I thought to myself, man, oh man, like, like we all have this idea of what do we say to people that are going through something difficult. And I was really touched and inspired to continue to bring these stories to the book in the best possible way so that maybe we could give some insight into that. Yeah, no, beautiful work. Definitely. Thank you for doing that. And David, besides your day job, writing, cooking 20 dishes soon, all the endurance that you do for yourself. Is there anything that we're missing? Yeah. And I also do a lot of community service. I do a lot of um, expressive writing workshops. So I go to cancer centers and other, other organizations. I give expressive writing workshops, which is basically I teach people how to have the conversation with themselves where they're kinder and nicer and kind of rewire the brain to understand the emotional stuff that they're gone, that they have gone through or that they are going through and how to kind of change the conversation so that they develop a little more self-care and a little more compassion for themselves. Yeah, with expressive writing, what, what I try to do is try to say, okay, whether that emotion is positive or negative, that feeling that you have, we got to express it in words, which is really hard to do. Oh, that's hard. That's why I think the words have power, but being present, like being together, be like connecting face-to-face -face or talking to the person has more power. It, it does, if we can give ourselves some time for ourselves, not just the other person, that's what's beautiful about contemplating your emotion and being in touch with it and understanding it, which is really something we never, ever do. Like, think about this, okay? If, if, if I ask you to think about a memory of when you were a kid, remember when you graduated high school? or maybe it was grade school, or maybe it was college or something, and picture yourself, and you go, man, I am so proud of myself. Like, understand what it's like, and I have this memory or whatever, okay? And when you're seeing that person in your head, I don't know about you, but most people see that third person. They're in the audience watching that person up there. It's it's third person. It's the happiness, the good emotion. It's, that's that person over there. It's not, you don't feel it. Now, let me tell you another one. Go back to when you were a kid and you did something by accident. You broke a planter. You broke a mirror. You came home late, but you didn't know you were supposed to be home early. And man, your parents, they got pissed and they screamed at you, maybe even beat you. And it's like, oh my God, like that you feel that motion. Now, when you think about that one, you feel it. You don't see it third person. You feel it. You, your feet are spinning like you get like, like that. Uh, like it's right there. You feel it. So we, we tend to first person, the negative emotion inside of us. And we tend to third person, the positive emotion inside of us. Oh, huh. We tend to see the good things as though that was somebody else. We tend to feel the bad things knowing that's us. Oh, that's our, that's what our inside brains try to do. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Well, think about it. Think about all your memories when you were a kid, the happy ones. You kind of see it like a movie and you go, oh, that's out there. And the negative ones, man, you feel. You just feel, you feel it. You don't see it. You feel it. What I try to do is to ask you to see it third person when you write about it. I want you to explain it. Describe the feeling. Don't feel it. Describe it. Talk about the feeling. And talk about how you emotionally feel about certain things, especially difficult things. And then when you read it, you're like, holy crap. I, I see the way I talk to myself. I see the way that I, that I feel the negative. I got to change that to be positive. I got I to understand the emotion. And that's what I try to do with my expressive writing is to have people have a very deep reconnecting discussion with themselves over the emotional side.
it, it's a really powerful thing. It's it's so healthy to do. I mean, not just mentally and, and psychologically, but but there have been many, many studies uh, done at very, very high level that there's health benefits to it as well. Yes, I, I believe that. And I know I have read it too. It's important to to put things in writing. And sometimes it's, it's like they're coming also out of you when they're negative and you're just letting it go as well. Yes, wonderful. You have a lot of books on the way. Yeah, I have plenty more that are in the works. It's just a matter of... Uh, when I can get them out and writing a book is one thing, but writing a good book and having a, a good editor and a good publisher and really, really understanding the three major parts about a book, like who are you writing the book for? What are you writing? Like, so who are you writing it for? What are you writing about? And why in the world does anybody care to read your book? Because there's a million other books that are coming out this year. Yeah. Who, what, and why? That's true. Those are hard questions to answer if it's going to be a book. So that's the mission. And how old are your kids now? Oh my gosh, they're 24. Oh, right. In 20 years. It's been 20 years since I stopped smoking and started running. And the relationship, do they come for advice to you or how is that? Uh, off and on, you know how it is with kids. Sometimes they ask my advice. Sometimes they say, stop giving me advice. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes, I know. There's a famous saying that Mark Twain, the author Mark Twain had. And he said, you know, I left home at 18 because my dad didn't know a thing. And I came back and visited him at 19. And I was shocked to find out how much he had learned. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Kids, they got to figure it out on their own. And then they realize, oh, maybe you were giving me advice and not preaching to me. I think I did an okay job. Yes. For, for me at the moment, I feel like I'm the one learning from them because they're 22 and 19. Yeah. And David, any more crazy races that you have in the works? I still do all the crazy stuff. Yeah, I'm doing the uh, Hawaii Ironman next October. I got some races between now and then. And, and you know, look, I'm not as fast as I could be and because I, I don't give it 100%, right? Oh. I just do what I can do because it's, it's something I like doing. Okay. And so I'm going to keep doing it. And I, and I honestly think until I stop learning, I'm going to keep doing it. I know this about myself. If, if I'm not learning then I, I have to move on. And as long as I keep learning, it's it's okay. Um, and people go, really? Like, why do you have to do that, that many Ironmans? Why do you do so many long runs? It's like, I, every time I learn, if I didn't learn, I wouldn't do it. Have you gotten any injuries because you started late? No. Oh, okay. Right, I'm almost 60 years old, which is old. That's old. Wow, no, 80 is old. Don't say that. I don't know what's old. It's older than 40. It's older than 20, but it is what it is. And so, but no, I'm very fortunate. I don't have any injuries and I don't have any limiters that are preventing me from trying to do the best that I can do on these things. So I'm going to keep doing it until I can't. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, David, for sharing with me this time. I enjoy it tremendously. You inspire me and I feel invigorated. So I love when that happens. Nice. Thank you. Good. I'm glad we had a talk again. I really like talking with you and thank you for giving so many different kinds of people such a safe space to talk about their stories. And that's how I learn. I learn from people's stories. Yes. So thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed it, today's episode. I am Daniela, and you were listening to Because Everyone Has a Story. Please take five seconds right now and think of somebody in your life that may enjoy what you just heard or someone that has a story to be shared and preserved. When you think of that person, shoot them a text with the link of this podcast. This would allow the ordinary magic to go further. Join me next time for another story conversation. Thank you for listening. Hasta pronto.